Hey, my name is Dan Kent, and I'm a teaching pastor here. We are, I'm jumping right in, so if you're taking notes, get your pen ready. I'm not messing around. I'm going right at it. So uh, we're in this series called The Center of Hope, and we were originally going to go into a series on the book of Revelation, but then Greg had this series of unfortunate events, and he, it involved back pain, he had kidney stones, he had a medical stent, he had an infection, all sorts of stuff, and just miserable few weeks that Greg had. And uh, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of discomfort, and also a lot of kind of intimate experience with the suckiness sometimes of having a body. And part of that experience that he had is uh, that he had these very kind of profound spiritual sort of insights. And over the last four weeks, he sort of progressively unpacked that and uh, and. And I get to be a part of this series as well. And as, as I've been listening to this, I, I've just been struck by this kind of promise in the New Testament that Greg also was sort of struck by. And that is this idea that we can have joy in our suffering. And, uh, and, and so, you know, Greg talked about joy and suffering. The Apostle Paul talks about boasting in our trials. Uh, uh, he talks about enjoying our testing. These ideas are so foreign to America. <laughs> we hate suffering. We go to great extents to uh, remove and eliminate and avoid suffering. And so, I've just been really struck by this. What is going on in the Christian faith that it could lead to this point where you could have joy even in suffering? What's going on underneath all of that? And that's what I've been sort of struck by, and that's what I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. And my sermon is titled, Anti-Fragile Faith. And, and I, I think that's what it is. That is what is going on underneath joy and suffering is I think that God is calling us and, and uh, shaping us to have hearts that are anti-fragile and to have a faith that is anti-fragile. Now, anti-fragile is a word that's not used very often. In fact, um, it's sort of a new term. It's a technical term. And uh, it, it's, it comes from a writer named Nassim Taleb. And I've been on a Nassim Taleb kick this year. I read all of his books and uh, he's just, I don't know if, he, if he's right about everything because he's too smart for me to know if he's right about everything, but he's definitely smart. And I've definitely learned a lot by reading his books. And he has this idea of anti-fragility. And anti-fragility is related to two other ideas. One idea being, of course, fragility. Uh, and fragility is when something can break easily under duress. That's something that's fragile. If, it, if you add any chaos or duress to it, it breaks. Another related term that's similar to fragility is strength. Now, strength also breaks under duress, but just it takes more duress to break. Anti-fragility is different than both of those because anti-fragility actually gets stronger under duress. You see how that's different? Something can be strong and still break under duress. It doesn't get stronger, it just withstands more. But something that's anti-fragile actually gets stronger under duress. And a couple examples of things that would be anti-fragile would be like our immune system. The more foreign bodies our immune system faces, the more antibodies it can create and the stronger the immune system gets. Another example is a, uh, a, a functioning uh, muscle system is, is uh, anti-fragile because the more resistance you put on your muscles, the stronger your muscles can get. I think that's what God is 
shaping us into. We are being shaped into people who have hearts that are anti-fragile. We are being shaped into people whose faith is anti-fragile. It means that as we face the problems in life, the trials in life, doubts even, as we face testing and pain and suffering, somehow those things all make us stronger. Uh, And I'm going to explain how I think that works in a little bit. But the problem is, is that how do we get to that? Because, you know, I see like some of the great people in Christian history and the martyrs and Jesus and the apostles and all of the things that they endured. And especially thinking of like the first century martyrs who would sing as they were being killed. Like that's anti-fragile faith. I mean, they are enjoying this. They are praising God. They are witnessing as they are being tortured. I'm not there. Uh, that's, that's a long way from where Dan is to that. And so the question is, how do I get there? And in fact, I, I, uh, I've been taking this anti-fragility idea seriously. And this year I, I started to kind of do some yoga with this idea that if you add resistance to your muscles, they get stronger. Now, it's not like weird yoga where I'm not like, you know, binding myself to the oneness of the cosmos or anything like that. It's really just isometric exercises. That's all it really is. But what I found is that, man, first of all, I feel great. But the interesting thing is, is uh, in order to do this, I, I was looking on YouTube and, wow, there's a lot of yoga stuff on YouTube. But I found a guy I like. His name is Sean Vig, and he has this introduction to yoga. And the video I saw, it's just a beginner video. He's doing this yoga out on his driveway, which is fine. You know, it's a good place to do yoga. But it's winter time. <laughs> There's snow everywhere. And he's doing yoga outside. And I saw that thinking, it, it, that never even occurred to me that I would do yoga outside in the cold. Like, if I go outside to try to do yoga, if there's a horsefly, I give up. I'm like, no, <laughs> this, is, this is too much. And as I'm watching this guy, I realize, wow, I'm soft. <laughs> How did I get so soft that I can't even handle doing yoga in the cold? And it's, it's, it's sad. I, I, I am not anti-fragile. In fact, looking at these martyrs, I hate pain. <laughs> I don't like pain. Pain, well, it hurts, <laughs> obviously. In fact, I don't even like spicy food. That's how much I don't <laughs> like pain. <clears throat> I heard an amen. That's, yes. And also, when the waiter says that the food is not really spicy, it is. Trust me, it is. <laughs> And if they say it's a little spicy, that means don't even look at it because it's going to hurt your tongue. So, so, so how is it? How do I get from this soft, wimpy Dan who can't even do yoga if it's too cold or if there's a horsefly out there? How do I get from that to praising God while I'm being martyred in a coliseum? How do I get to that point from where I am? And I think that Greg really kind of gave us a big clue I think he really tapped into something really important last week, and I've just been cogitating about it ever since. And he said this. He said that it's so important what we put at our center. What, what do we put at our center for what we want out of life? What do we want out of life? And what he said is that for a lot of Americans, for a lot of developed nations, for a lot of first world countries, the thing that people put at their center of what they really want out of life is happiness. And I thought about that, and I think that's right. Uh, But here's the deal. If you put happiness at the center of this is what I want out of life, you're guaranteeing that you will have a fragile heart and a fragile faith. And it's just mathematical because if you think about it, happiness 
is mutually exclusive to suffering and pain. The two are mutually exclusive. And yet we know for sure we're guaranteed to experience suffering and pain in this life. That's a guarantee. We're not guaranteed to experience happiness. But even if we do experience happiness, we know it's going to be nullified by the eventual suffering and pain. And so, like mathematically, if you put happiness at the center, you're guaranteeing that you will end up in a place of disappointment and maybe even in despair. And since we live in a world where everybody else is chasing this happiness, if it makes you happy, whatever makes you happy, you have the right to pursue happiness. Everybody's doing this. And if that's what we're pursuing and we go on Instagram to see how much better everybody else is doing at their happiness pursuit, or at least they're claiming to be doing really well, but we see that and guess what else we experience? Envy. And so when you put happiness at the center in this world, it's like a, a, a despair, envy machine. How could it not be? It's, it's mathematically going to lead to that point. 1 Peter 3.14, Peter says this, Even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. That is, do not fear what the people who put happiness at the center fear. They fear weird things because they have the wrong thing at the center. Rather, what Peter says is, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In other words, put God's will at the center. Put Jesus at the center. And what God's will is for us is to become Christ-like. That's, that's what God's will is for us, is to become Christ-like. So that is what should be at our center. That is what we should want out of our life, is I want to be more like Jesus. That's very different than putting happiness at the center. If you put that at the center, I want to be more like Jesus, the first thing that you'll notice is becoming Christ-like is not mutually exclusive to pain and suffering. You're already making a big step towards anti-fragility. The math works out. You're in a much better place already. In fact, you can see this as, as, you, as you think more about this, what you realize is that since pain and suffering is not mutually exclusive to becoming more Christ-like, things that used to be threats when I had happiness at the center now actually become opportunities. Threats are now opportunities. That is a huge transformational shift in living. That's, in my mind, that is super profound. And you, you see this the more you look at it in the scriptures. You can even start with something like the fruit of the spirits. And you find this in Galatians 5. And there's a bunch of fruits of the spirit that, uh, that Paul gives. And for instance, one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. Well, if you think about self-control, <laughs> you can only have so much self-control based on how much temptation that you have resisted or figured out or outsmarted. The more temptation that you have been able to outsmart or solve, the greater your self-control is going to be. Forbearance is another fruit of the Spirit. Forbearance is basically just being tolerant or restraining yourself around others. You're not going to have very much forbearance if you surround yourself with like-minded people, <laughs> which might make you happy, but it's not going to give you much forbearance. It's only when you surround yourself with people who you might have to tolerate a little bit, who you might have to show some restraint around, that's how you build forbearance. What was a threat when I had happiness in the center now suddenly is building in me Christ-like characteristics. I have these opportunities in these situations that I used to hate. Now suddenly I'm cashing in on them. I just think that's amazing. Faithfulness is another fruit of the Spirit. Again, faithfulness, the, 
the, the strength of your faithfulness can only be related to the depths of the doubts that you have had to wrestle through. The more doubt that you've had to wrestle through and yet you're still faithful, the stronger that faithfulness is. Again, it's, 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 not, it's not like we're excited to doubt, but boy, I tell you what, when you wrestle through that, your faithfulness gets stronger. It's anti-fragile. James says this in James 1, verses 2 through 4. He says to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance will come to completion in you. Now that, that idea that, that perseverance will somehow come to completion. I'm guessing that's the sound it makes. It just, it, it's like this algorithm. If you persist at this, if you continue to persist, it, it comes to completion in you. What is that completion? Well, I think that's the anti-fragility. That's the anti-fragility that allows us to have joy even in suffering. And uh, I, just this idea, um, I just think is so important. Paul describes his community. Uh, and I just think it's such a beautiful description of an anti-fragile community. And he, he does this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. He says this, We are hard-pressed on every side. We're under duress. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Can you hear that anti-fragility there? No matter what they do to us, it just makes us stronger. That's anti-fragility. That is what God is calling us to. In fact, this anti-fragility, the more we grow into it, with Christ-likeness at the center of everything that we want in our life, the more we grow into that, we can start to live by what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says this, Give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances, give thanks. That means that there are no circumstances that we could possibly encounter that cannot benefit us. There are no circumstances that cannot be transformed into something good or glorious by God. And just this idea of being grateful no matter the circumstance. As I've thought about this, I thought if I could do that, if I could get good at being grateful no matter what is happening in my life, it sort of sets my mind in this kind of mindset where I'm always thinking about my anti-fragile heart, where I'm always thinking about this, this anti-fragile kind of faith that I have when I have Christ-likeness at the center. And I tell you what, if you can be grateful in all circumstances, holy cow, that is a profound counterattack to an enemy who is perpetually trying to stoke disappointment and despair and envy and all sorts of negative things. I tell you what, if you are grateful in all circumstances, that just cuts all of that nonsense out at the knees. It's such a great spiritual counterattack to the enemy that we all face in this world. Even suffering carries with it a spiritual opportunity when we have Christ-likeness at the center of what we want. And it's not that we seek out suffering, of course not. And it's not that God causes this suffering. No, he just uses it. There's, in a world that is a living creation, in a world in the middle of spiritual warfare, in a world that is not yet the way that God wants it to be, we are going to face suffering. We don't have to seek it out or anything like that. It's going to happen. The question 
is what are we going to do with that? And there's a lot of different types of suffering, of course. I mean, I hope that, uh, you know, your suffering is not like Jesus' suffering. And I hope that the suffering that you encounter isn't like the martyrs or even like what Greg experienced. I, I, I hope it's not like that, but it could be something more abstract, which sometimes can be just as hard. So for instance, maybe you're suffering from loneliness. Man, loneliness hurts. Loneliness can really, really hurt. Or maybe you're suffering from depression, boredom, Maybe you have grief that you haven't been able to work through or an, a, a nasty addiction that you haven't been able to let go of or insecurity and uh, anger and obesity. And there's so many things, there's so many problems that we can have that, uh, that become, I think, spiritual opportunities when we have Christ-likeness at our center. The question, though, is how will we respond? Now, how most people respond is that we avoid those things in our lives. We avoid dealing with the things that we don't like about ourselves. We avoid dealing with the, the painful things in our lives because it hurts. Trying to confront an insecurity or trying to confront uh, your loneliness or whatever, there's a lot of pain there. And, and it hurts to confront those things. And M. Scott Peck wrote a book called uh, The Road Less Traveled. He actually argued that most mental illnesses results from complicated ways of trying to avoid the problems in our lives. So we have this problem and we end up creating mental illnesses in our lives to try to avoid that. And I tell you what, if you have happiness at the center of what you want out of this life, that is going to exponentially multiply the temptation to avoid your problems. Because facing your problems, that's not, that's, there's no happiness there. That sucks. It's hard to confront your problems. And so having happiness at the center just amplifies our temptation to avoid our problems. And what Peck says is that that ends up leading to more mental health problems. It gets worse if we try to avoid these things in our lives. And you see this in a lot of ways. Maybe a person is experiencing loneliness. And instead of dealing with that loneliness, they discover, you know what helps is drinking. <laughs> drinking helps. And um, well, now suddenly they're not only lonely, but they have a drinking problem. And the weird thing about that is that the more helpful the alcohol is for the loneliness, the worse the addiction problem is. And so the more it helps, the more it hurts. And that's the way avoiding problems always goes. If you avoid problems, a lot of times it just gets worse and worse and worse. But when you have Christ-likeness at the center of what you want out of life, well, then you are anti-fragile to those things. You can face those things because you're not afraid of having the discomfort. You're not afraid of having that pain. You can face the things that maybe you might have previously avoided. I, I've shared uh, a, couple, a few a couple sermons ago, I shared the story of how I graduated high school. And, uh, and I wish I had time to share it again because it's my favorite story. But... Uh, but I'll say this, I'll just, quick summary, I graduated barely with a D minus average. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with that, D minus is just barely above F. So it's just like right up there, just barely graduated. And, uh, but then here's the weird thing, is five or six years later, not only did I have a college degree, but I also had pretty close to an A average in college. And I was an adjunct teaching my first college course. That's a huge transition to go from D minus, barely graduating, I had to eat a bunch of candy bars in order to graduate, to teaching a college course in just like five years. How did that happen? And, and I'll say part of it is that 
I faced something that I was avoiding for various reasons, for various circumstantial reasons, and also personal laziness reasons and apathy and all sorts of dumb stuff about Dan and also dumb stuff about my situation. I was not a good student. And I had to come to this fact that, Dan, you're not a good student. And, um, but I loved learning. I fell in love with God. I fell in love with learning and I wanted to go to college. But I knew that I had this problem. And what I did is I said, first of all, I admitted, okay, I have this problem. I'm not a good student. And now I'm going to face it. I'm going to do something about it. So what I did is I went and I found the smartest person I knew. And I just lucked out. He's still the smartest person I know. He's super smart. His name is Randy Barnhart. And he was going to college. And I said, Randy, can I be your roommate? And he said, yeah, sure. And I I went to Randy and in full humility, I confessed to Randy. I said, Randy, Dan don't learn good. (laughs) So... (laughs) I've come a long way since then, obviously. So No, I told him, I said, look, I, I'm not a good student. I need help. I need help. And, and, and so he kind of taught me how he, is, how he does schooling. And he ta- taught me how he manages his workload and how he, he prepares for tests and how he writes a paper and all of that kind of stuff that, uh, for some reason, all that bureaucratic stuff, I just didn't, never really got. And he helped me learn those things. Uh, but I got to the point where I was able to face that thing that I had avoided all through junior high and high school. Even suffering has spiritual opportunities when we can face them. And and, and it's no wonder that the early Christians, the early mystics, a lot of the early monks, they really liked this idea of a labyrinth as a symbol of the problems in our lives. And a labyrinth is similar to a maze. A maze is where you could take a left or a right, and some of them will lead to dead ends, and some of them won't. It's kind of like a puzzle. A labyrinth is different than that. A labyrinth, there, there's just one way that you go. And the idea is that you take a labyrinth to the center, and then you take it out the other side. And as you're walking through this labyrinth, it, it's, it turns and moves in such a way that it starts to perplex you because it doesn't seem like this is ever going to get to a center. And, and you get perplexed, and, and you get sort of uncertain. You feel lost. And you get to this point where the only thing you can do is keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's all I can do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then you make it to the center. And now, once you've made it to the center, you are much more confident that you're going to make it out to the other side. Augustine said this, when it comes to the labyrinths of our lives, he said, salvitur ambulando, which is Latin for the cure is walking or it is solved by walking. Now, I don't know if Augustine actually said that. I haven't been able to find the quote, but people say that he said it, so I'm going with it. But here's the thing about a labyrinth. You cannot solve a labyrinth by avoiding the labyrinth. You have to face it. You have to go in. If if you have a labyrinth in your life, a problem that you've been avoiding, it'll never just go away. You have to solve it eventually. You have to go in. And when you're anti-fragile, when you have Christ-likeness at the center, you have no reason to avoid it. You can just go in. You can just face it. You can know that whatever challenge is in there, ultimately, either will bring about good spiritual fruit or God is going to transform your effort into something glorious. Now, just to be clear, this is not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because this isn't something that you just will. Okay, I have a problem with drinking. I'm just going to not have a problem anymore. That's not what I'm saying because some of these problems, wow, they're really, really hard. And sometimes we face this and we have to try many, many, many times before we even make any progress. 
And, you know, I'm always inspired by my mom. My mom has, has had an amazing life, and she inspires me in a lot of ways. But one of the recent things that has just really inspired me about my mom is that she quit smoking. And then she quit again. <laughs> and then she quit again. And then she quit again. Boy, everybody says quitting smoking is hard. She's done it many times. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> she probably quit smoking 20 times. But now she has not smoked in about four years. And she just has no interest in doing it. It took her about 20 times to finally get to this point where she's just not even wrestling with it anymore. Isn't that great? That's, that is so good. With Christ-likeness at your center, yeah, for my mom too, that's so good. With Christ-likeness at your center, whatever is between you and Christ-likeness, it's just a labyrinth that you can throw yourself into, you can solve it, you can, you can face it, and you can walk it, and if you fail, that's okay, get back up. Even if you have to get back up 20 times, that's, that's part of the labyrinth, is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I believe that this journey, this, this journey toward Christ-likeness, I think that this is what God is calling us all into. This is what the Spirit is empowering us to do, is to become more and more Christ-like. But Here's the thing is none of this stuff is going to happen unless we consent, unless we participate. Because as Greg has said many times, and it's so important, God does not lobotomize us. He does not coerce us. God calls us. God wants us to willingly participate. We have to be willing. Psalm 53.2 says this, and I love this translation. I didn't know which one it was. Jeremy found the translation. It's such a great translation. It says this, God is looking down for people looking up. <laughs> That's my synopsis of it. God is looking down for people looking up. God is looking for people who are willing. It doesn't matter what your college degree is. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter how good looking you are. God will use anybody who is willing. God will use anybody who is looking up. Another phrase that is used is God is looking for people who are seeking. God is wanting us to reach out to God. All of those ideas capture this idea of willing and wanting to participate. That's what's required. Jesus, in his earthly body, uh, he, he models this for us too in a really profound way on the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's also called Gethsemane. It's, it's the same hill. It's, but he's, he knows that his time is running out. He knows that the good times are coming to a close and he is about to suffer. He knows that there are forces coming in from the dark, from all sides, to arrest him. And he's in his final moments and he's praying to God. And he, he's so distressed by what he knows is coming that it says that he was sweating like blood. And it says that he fell to the ground. And Mark uses the Aramaic word Abba. And, and so Jesus falls to the ground and says, Daddy, is what he says in just this most intimate word. Uh, the way that Matthew puts it, he says, My father, please, may this cup of suffering be taken from me. I don't want to do this. This is, I don't want it, let's, there's got to be another way. And yet, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, whatever it is that God is doing here, I am willing. I might not like it, but I am willing to commit myself to this thing greater than me. That's the willingness that God is looking for. But here's the thing is, God also has to be willing. And 
we see this also in Jesus's life. Uh, there's this, this encounter in, in Matthew 8. It's also in a couple of the other synoptics where this leper approaches Jesus. And lepers in the first century, man, that was a tough, tough road. Because if you had leprosy, it's very contagious. And so communities would immediately kick you out of the community. And you would end up living your sore painful existence out in the wilderness alone and everybody stayed away from you because they thought you were somehow spiritually unclean and cursed by the gods and so they just stay away and what a miserable life not to mention the pain of leprosy itself sucked and so when this leper sees Jesus he falls to the ground and this is Matthew 8 and he says my Lord I know that if you are willing You can make me clean. This gets me every time. Jesus extends his hand and touches him, which nobody would touch a leper, but Jesus touches him and he says, I am willing. I am willing. Be clean. And now the point of that isn't that if you are suffering, that means God's not willing. That's not the point because God is willing. God, in fact, God promises that you will be healed and you will be whole. You'll be full. You'll be, you'll be vital. You'll be vibrant. God, that's what God wants for you and that's what will happen. The point though is that God is not a machine. God is not karma. God is a real being. God is a living being. God is a breathing, living entity that wants to have relationship. God is dynamic. God creates this living world in which he wants to have this relationship with these living people. And even though, yes, he is promising that he will bring healing, and that is what he's willing, we can trust that God is willing, he does all of that in a living creation, in a world that is not the way that God wants it to be, that's under the authority of an enemy that's in the middle of a spiritual war. But in the face of all of that and in the face of all that suffering, what we see is that despite all of that, God is willing and God wants. God is willing. And the question that we should take away from all of this, I think, and it's the question I've been thinking about, is am I willing? Am I willing? Am I willing to at least put Christ-likeness at the center of my life, of what I want? That's the first step at least, putting that there, getting rid of happiness and pleasure. There's nothing wrong with happiness and pleasure. It's just that they don't work as the center of our lives. We have to put something that's anti-fragile at the center of our lives. And pursuing Christ-likeness, I think, is that thing. So the question is, is am I willing? Am I willing to commit to putting Christ-likeness at the center? Am I willing to face my pains, my challenges, my shortcomings, all the obstacles that stand between me and Christ-likeness? Am I willing to face those things? Am I willing to commit to walking through those labyrinths? Even if I fall, am I committed to getting back up? Am I willing? Are you willing? I hope so. And if you are willing to do that, and I hope you are, well, the next question is this. What are those labyrinths? What are those pains that you have been avoiding? Uh, and there's so many. I mean, we know life is hard and there's lots of pains. And maybe, you know, maybe it could be something like your marriage is, is uh, soured. Maybe it's not going well. Uh, well, face that. Don't avoid the problems in your marriage. Face it. That might just be about having a conversation. Or it might be something more escalated. Maybe you bring a friend in. Or maybe you seek a counselor. Don't avoid that. Face it. 
that, that's, that's what facing our labyrinths is, is, is start to do things to move through that. Or maybe you're like me and you have really dumb addictions, like to sugar. <laughs> and maybe, like me, you've tried to quit sugar and uh, you failed over and over and over again. But the commitment isn't to succeed on the first try. The commitment is to keep trying. And there are things that I have not yet tried and I'm going to keep trying. That's the commitment. Or maybe you're suffering from crippling loneliness or something like that. It, don't walk around with that. F- face that. Kind of figure that out. Think about why you're lonely. Start to wrestle with that. Start to talk to people who aren't lonely about it. Maybe if you, know, you have some social anxiety, a lot of people do, you're not willing to talk to somebody about it, well, maybe read a book about it. Or maybe call a counselor. I mean, just take us. That's what facing it is. It doesn't mean, it's not like throwing a rock at a giant. It's not a, a five-minute thing. It's a, it's a long process. But at least start that process. At least start to walk into the labyrinth. And the rest will take care of it. We have a lot of problems, of course. And we're, it's a long way from here to there. We've Tons of problems. But when we have Christ-likeness at the center, I really believe that those problems become opportunities. And, and we have to commit to facing those things. And maybe if you're young, you might be thinking, well, I, I don't have to start facing those things now. No, face them now. Everybody who's older in here, I saw them nodding their heads because those things get harder to deal with. Now, if you're older like me, you might think, well, at my age, I'm not going to start facing that now. No, start facing them now. We're running out of time. You know, we, we, don't have, we can't like put this off for, maybe I'll do that in my 60s. No, I, I don't know if I'm going to get that far. Now's the time to start facing those. Not because we're going to conquer it, but because that's what pursuing Christ-likeness is, is, is fighting the battle. It's, it's, entering the, it's entering the labyrinth. That's what it is. And, and you might think that, you know, the, 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 the problem that I have, it's too big. I'll never solve it in this life. That's okay. Fine. You're not going to solve it in this life. But at least go down swinging. At least go down swinging. Don't go down without fighting it. That's not a good way to go down. Go down swinging at it. That's, that's what I encourage you to think about. And maybe you've tried and failed. Okay, yeah, so what? Who said that you're going to conquer this on the first try? It might take, like my mom, 20 tries before you find any success at all. But that's what it is. Keep trying. Paul says this in Romans 5.5. 5. He says that suffering leads to perseverance, and perseverance leads to character, and character leads to hope. And then he says, hope in God will not put us to shame. In other words, we have no reason not to enter the labyrinth. We have nothing to lose. No matter what happens, no matter how bad we fail, it will not be put to shame. God will somehow use that and glorify it. And so we have nothing to lose. And so when I look at all of this, and I I put all of this stuff together, I just think that when we have Christ-likeness at the center... And when we live with that, that's what I want out of life. I want to pursue Christ like this. I want to be more and more like Jesus. I think that combined with the promises of the New Testament, that death is not the end, and that God will transform whatever happens to me into something glorious, when I, when I have all of that in my heart and in my head, on top of which I've got the Holy Spirit roaring inside of me, all of that together, I can't help but think, the more I try, the more I face my labyrinths, the more and more and more that God will grow in me an anti-fragile heart. I think it's inevitable. God will use all of that to shape a heart that it might be bruised, but it cannot be broken. And I think that this leads to that joy that is talked about in the New Testament, a joy that might dim, but it cannot be fully extinguished. 
That, I think, is what God is calling us to. And that's what it means to have joy in suffering. It means that you have put Christ-likeness at the center. You have pursued that so much and so perseverantly with perseverance that you have this anti-fragile faith and this anti-fragile heart. If you have a labyrinth that you have been avoiding in your life, maybe the first step might just be to admit that to somebody. Or maybe the first step might be to pray about it. And if that's you, uh, we have people who can pray with you up front about that. We also have people online who who can pray with you. And maybe that might be your first step. Uh, It also might be uh, helpful to talk about that with other believers. And that's something that you can do at the gathering groups, which are starting up uh, September 11th. And also, Shauna and I are going to talk more about this on Tuesday. So with that, uh, have a blessed day, and uh, thank you for being here. And it's good to see everybody.